Good to be together. I don't know if I'm live. Hey, there we you're go. You're live. Good to see you, too. I'm not sure I am, but you're <laughs> live, so I'm just going to go through the Hi. So I'm glad yeah. we can hear you. Bring yeah. the word that God has laid on your heart. All look right. To it. Sounds good. Uh, well, I just had, I want to give you a couple encouraging words. Um, Sometimes I think that we down here on earth measure uh, what we're doing in maybe attendance. And, and I don't think heaven measures that way. And, and so when I actually look at this room, I think Union Hill has just a rich history of being a sending church. And, and so that whole flow of sending versus just, you know, we've said it this way. It's not really about your seating. It's about your sending. It's not really about measurement by who's sitting here, but like, you have just a rich history of blessing people and sending. It's almost like if you took uh, Acts 1-8, you know, be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's almost like this church took that literally. And I love that. And we are, we, our family have, and, and many more families have been recipients of that. In fact, if we were to bring in and try to gather all the people that you have sent out and you have blessed and you've sent out as missionaries into the world, into this place, we couldn't fit in here. And so I know that sometimes, and I, maybe, maybe it's this way in other places as well, I know that down at the living room, the summer months, it kind of feels like, oh man, are we going to survive? And there's a lot of empty seats, you know, and, and we're ascending church. And I, I think it's okay. I think that, me, so just to encourage you guys, uh, what a beautiful family. Union Hill Church, is, it, it's, it's not just a church body. It's a, I feel like this is really a family on mission. And it sends out from itself families on mission. And, and I'm, I, I don't know what I saw up there. What's, was that a vision statement at the bottom there? Oh, it's just, yeah, values, yeah. New roots, new, what is it, new shoots, new? New shoots, deep roots. New, new shoots, deep roots. Diverse fruit. Diverse fruit. Well, boy, we are some of that diverse fruit for sure, okay? <laughs> and we just want to say thank you, especially all the way down in Southern Oregon. It almost seems like a whole different world down there. So I just want to give you encouragement on that. And I also know, uh, I understand you guys are going through the book of Acts. And um, I just think Pastor Ben is just, I mean, what a cool, what a cool book to go through. The, the journey of the early church that through persecution and also combined with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they are sent out as a family on mission. Um, and I think Ben, Pastor Ben will do just a great job with that. And so all that heavy lifting's on him. We're going to turn to John 4 today. And the question is a little bit, uh, I, I think trying to look at it a little bit deeper um, a deeper question of like, okay, we're ascending church, but why? And so just this deeper why, and I want to pose this question to you, you can probably see it up there. Uh, what makes you any different? Because in reality, there's a lot of different religions out there. There's a lot of different belief systems out there. There's a lot of other groups out there that are on some sort of mission. So why Christ? Why Christianity? And better yet, in particular, why you? I mean, what makes you any different? We're like, I think we're in a sea of perceived different worldviews and different religions that you could pick from. So why is Christ any different? And why are you as his messenger any different? And I'm talking to the individual in the room. So I'm just posing this to the individual. And I also want to push in a little bit and go, as a church, why are you any different? Why Union Hill? Like, how are you going to be any different? Everybody has an agenda, right? People are used to being sold something. So if we're just selling Jesus, like, how is he any different than the worldviews out there? I also want to encourage you because I believe that if you've been walking in church circles for a while, the story we're about to read from in John chapter 4 may be pretty familiar. So I'm going to ask you to really try to, try to as much as you can, go from scratch. Hear this with fresh ears. 
ask the Holy Spirit to enliven your, maybe your, imagine, your imagination and, and just let the picture of this story, if possible, just take new light to you. Pretend you're hearing it for the first time ever. Does that work? The other thing I want to speak to is not just your eyes and your ears, your imagination, but I want to speak to that little defense attorney that lives inside you. Little chuckle because I'm as guilty, like everybody has this little, I think this little defense attorney that when you hear something like God's word or you, you hear a message that could be kind of challenging, I think one of the first things we try to do is say, oh, I'm already doing that. Check. That little defense attorney that says, well, hey, you know, maybe I'm not like doing all of it, but I'm at least doing better than that person. So I just want to speak to that little defense attorney and say, you're cast out of this place this morning. In fact, I, I, you do that work. Speak to that defense attorney in your own heart and say, you're out. Quiet down. We want to be shaped and transformed this morning. At least that's, that's my prayer. So before we even read it, I'm going to pray that over us, if you don't mind. And Lord Jesus, uh, my friends here do not need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And so, Jesus, uh, may, may I look at that question in my own heart, too, first, even before delivering this. Could this not be uh, some sermon delivered? Could this not be just a good message that gets consumed and then discarded like a meal? Could this be more of a life-transforming moment for all of us? And so, Holy Spirit, would you just minimize me? Maximize yourself in this place, Lord. Probe deep into our hearts, and if there's areas of pruning, make it known. And just, if we've got hard hearts, soften them. Do whatever it takes to that effect. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 4 starts out like this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Hey, slides are up there. I was sweating for a minute. I was like, Jesus managed to do this without slides, but I don't know if Dan can. So this, anyway. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. I kind of pause there and go, that's kind of curious. I wonder if right out of the gate, Jesus was thinking multiplication. I wonder if right out of the gate, Jesus was thinking, I'm going to get them to be about the kingdom work. I don't know. So anyway, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed from Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Doing a little bit of research on that, and the, the, the initial original Greek for he had to, a lot of believe, a lot believe that it wasn't like he had to geographically, he had to because he just had to, bummer, but it was more like a divine mandate that he was supposed to. Kind of a cool way to look at it. That he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a, count, a town of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So I just want to pause there and look at this story a little bit first. First of all, uh, the Sumerians are kind of a mixed blood group, right? And, and kind of saying it lightly. This is like the, like, th this would be like they're in, in absolute, there's bitterness that, res that, that is between Jewish folk and the Sumerians. And it goes all the way back to like 722 BC. Israel is taken over by the Assyrians. They're driven into exile. And all of a sudden now there's mixed people, mixed groups mingling amongst the Jews. And they're actually intermarrying when they're not supposed to be. And all of a sudden belief systems are getting crossed over. And now the Jewish people are no longer that. They're now these Sumerian group of people. 
So there's this deep, bitter hostility. And so the fact that Jesus, uh, again, had to pass through Samaria, uh, really, a lot, of study, a lot of studies show that good Jewish folk would actually take the time to walk around. They'd cross over the, go to the east and cross over the Jordan River just to avoid even walking through Samaria. And again, Samaria is a full-out region, right? And it says that Jesus actually goes into this town, Sakar, right? Sakar, you know, it's an interesting thing. Sakar means drunken. I paused at that. Now, I have heard this story many times, and just this week I'm reading through and I realized, wait, this is a, this is a town named after an attribute. That's brutal, especially if the, if the attribute named for this town is drunken. Believe it or not, Isaiah the prophet wrote some 700 plus years before this time, he wrote to the people living in that region about their drunkenness issues. And now this town is named for being drunken. What a, what a unique lost city this is. What a uniquely lost town this is. And it made me think, what if, if Redmond wasn't ra- named Redmond, but it was named after a key attribute, what do you think it would be? Ouch. Maybe. I was looking at it, I'm like, man, this is an entire town named Drunken. For they were rebuked in prior centuries of their drunkenness. This is a particularly lost town. I was thinking in our region, you know, Ashland, Oregon would probably be named Naked Oregon. Not good, right? <laughs> Medford, which is pretty close to where we're at, might be like Methamphetamine, Oregon. Our area might be like Pot Farm, Oregon. I don't know, but it's like, what would Redmond be named after? And so I just want to take you into the mentality. I mean, you're following Jesus. Say, say you're one of his disciples, and you're following him through, and you kind of start like wandering towards the east going, hey, aren't we going this way? And he goes, no, no, no. We're going right through, the, right through the center, right through the center of the area where we are enemies. We are, they, they don't connect with God. We connect with God. But for some reason, we're walking right through the gut of it. I just find that amazing that Jesus had to, by divine order, by mission, go through such a very lost area. And the truth is, every area is lost. But I just find that amazing. I read that story and it just, it, it, it becomes a little bit more, uh, it just becomes a little deeper for me. Oh, by the way, that journey's no small journey. They said that it would have taken about three days to cross from Judea up to where they are going. And Samaria, the region of Samaria is right in the middle of where they're going. So about three days. And the Samarians would not let typically Jewish people stay there overnight. So I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, if you're following Jesus, you're going, okay, these are our enemies. These people are far from God. To even stay here and, and share a drink with somebody, to share a cup with someone, would make us ceremonially unclean. These are unclean folk. We have no dealings with these folk. And he's taken us right through the gut of it. And here we come to a scene in a town called Drunken. Okay, you with me? It says this. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by, beside the well. Why does it say, okay, why is he sitting at the well? Because he's wearied? I want you to think about it. Yahweh on foot is walking through a town called Drunken. I mean, second member of the Trinitarian God that we believe in. God himself in human form, form is walking through a town called Drunken. And I think it's really amazing that it says he's wearied. Why did he stop at the well? Maybe he had the whole picture going on. Maybe it was, I mean, maybe like he, he knew he needed to go and he knew that he was going to have this divine intervention in this person's life. I think it's amazing the Bible said he's wearied. 
He's tired. I think sometimes our theology goes, okay, Jesus is God and he like somehow like some sort of superhuman didn't feel anything while he was down here. And in doing so, I think we need to be careful. I think we gut the gospel. I think we rob God of the reality that he became human in every single way, just like you and me. I need you to feel with Jesus that like he was wearied by a very long trip. The God of heaven is thirsty. The God of heaven is tired in this moment. The God of heaven is feeling the same cultural pressure that you and I would of going into enemy territory to go through a town called Drunken. I just thought it was amazing that it says he's wearied from his trip. So it says this, it was about the six hours, it's about midday. A woman, of all people, a woman? There's cultural issue right there. Man engaging in a conversation with a woman. Here it comes. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So right out of the gate, he's engaging her. Huge no-no. Huge cultural no-no. The fact that him, a Jewish leader, a teacher, a rabbi, is speaking into the life of a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. And a lot of people would speculate, okay, it's midday and typically women would go out and gather their water early in the morning. Maybe this shows her lack of popularity amongst the folks. I'm not going to speculate and say too much what's not necessarily in the text, but what's coming next, we will see that this is a very broken woman. There's no reason, there's no logical reason that, that Jesus, God in human form, should be walking through a town called Drunken talking to this woman. In fact, there's a lot more reasons for him not to be talking to her than there are reasons that he should be. So in your life, just pausing for a second, who's in your sphere of influence? that you could just gain a whole lot of reasons not to engage. I mean, you got a whole lot of excuses, reasonable excuses to not engage. But what if God's saying, I want you to? Or you might have a whole slew of a hundred reasons why it's not a good idea to engage this person where they're at. Cultural pressures, whatever it might be. Maybe your reputation's at stake. I mean, Jesus could be feeling that pressure. Man, my reputation could be at stake here. God in human form talking to her. But this divine intervention concept, this, this had to, I find it fascinating. So it says this, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is like a law, right? You're breaking the law talking to me. How is this possible? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? I'm wondering if at that point he's like, yeah, I built him. I made him. The patriarchs that you're, that you're, that you're mentioning, they're patriarchs because I said that they are patriarchs. I find that, anyway. It says this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. They're having a pretty deep theological conversation. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What? He's talking about eternal life? That's impossible. For she's not Jewish. 
She's in the midday collecting water. She's a Samaritan woman. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. For some reason, she doesn't like going out in the middle of the town. Read into that, and she's alone in the middle of the day is what it sounds like. Perhaps all the ladies of the town have already collected their water. And here she is, marginalized woman, getting water on her own, and she doesn't like having to do it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I just get, the, I, I wish, maybe someday they'll have like a video reel in heaven where I could see, you could go back and see Jesus' facial expressions because it's not collected here, but I just get that, I, I just wonder if Jesus is like, yeah. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have five husbands. Sorry, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. <gasps> I mean, she's caught, like, right? He, go, he knows the right question to ask, and she's kind of partially, I mean, she's, she's true, but it's not like she just busted out and said, here's my brokenness. <laughs> and Jesus goes, no, you're right. You've not had, you don't have a husband. You've had five and the one you're living with right now isn't even your husband. Now, you could read into this, and some have had said, okay, well, maybe like this is kind of like, maybe she's a borderline prostitute. There's grounds for that. I mean, maybe she's just sleeping with this guy. Maybe she's worked her way through adultery. I mean, she probably should be dead at that point, but maybe it's been that she's uh, barren. Maybe she can't have children, and so by that law and like by the grounds of her being barren, maybe she's been divorced five different times, and now she's just sleeping with this dude to survive. Whatever it is, whatever you could read into the text, here's one thing for sure. This gal is broken. She is marginalized, and she is broken, and not just broken by her behavior, but by her questions, you can tell she is broken on the inside of who she is. And she is, I, I'm thinking that she's probably feeling quite hopeless in life. She's drawn water in the well in the middle of the day, and she lives in a town called Drunken, and she may or may not be a prostitute, but it's pretty close. What you have said is true, said Jesus. The woman said to him, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, a lot of people might go, Oh, yeah, sneaky. She's changing, she's changing the subject. I don't know if she's doing that or not, but I know this. She has the wherewithal to... What she's doing is asking a question that is pressing on all Samaritan folk. Where, where is legitimate worship supposed to happen? So I, she may be like a broken woman, but here she is bringing a, a legitimate theological question to the table. A people that all of her people should be asking this question ultimately. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, and I wonder if he kind of went like this. Jesus like leaned in, whispered, I don't know. I who speak to you am he. This is the first time, at least in the Gospel of John, where Jesus blatantly says, I am the Messiah. And he says that absolute gospel truth to the most unlikely ears. Like, why? 
In fact, by the way, this is the longest private personal conversation recorded in the, Old, or in the New Testament with Jesus with anybody. And he's doing it with a Samaritan borderline possibly prostitute. What? And just before this, in chapter 3, he's talking to a Jewish leader, Nicodemus. And even with Nicodemus, he's going, you got to be born again, you're missing the mark. And doesn't come out and say, hey, guess what? I'm the Messiah, I'm here, I've arrived. And I wonder how much it is this, that the Jewish mindset is a pretty religious mindset looking for a political king when Jesus is the king of the broken. He's the king of politics too. He's got it all covered, don't get me wrong. Like he's absolutely in control. His sovereignty is, you don't question it, right? But I just want to, I find it fascinating. Why in the world would it be her? The book of John is a very apologetic book. It's, it's providing an argument for the listeners to say, listen up. Jesus is God in human form and he died a crazy death for you and me. This is a gospel-driven book and I find it amazing that the first person that it's revealed to is her. Why? Why did Jesus give such personal close attention. Why did he give such, and here's the word for today, you ready? Why did he give such belonging to a person who clearly doesn't belong anywhere? She doesn't even belong in a town called Drunken. She doesn't even belong in her first, second, third, or fourth husband's house. Fifth even. And the house she's now in, she's just sleeping around to stay there. This gal has no belonging in life. She's a wanderer. Can you attach with her for a minute? Perhaps you sit here and you go, well, yeah, she's really broken. But before Christ in my life, and maybe even now, like, I'm not broken to that level. I need you to attach with her for a minute. Think about you before Christ. What was your condition before Jesus engaged your heart? And still you might go, okay, well, it's not that, I, I mean, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't, a, I wasn't an adulterous prostitute, or I wasn't a broken drug addict, or I wasn't fill in the blank. Let me push into this a little further. What is God's view, or what was God's view of you prior Jesus? Because you're measuring on a horizontal playing field going, hey, I'm not as bad as the woman at the well. But in reality, to his playing field, any inkling of sin in your life is, it is absolute adultery. You are just as bad. I need you to resonate with her for a minute and go, yeah, that need for belonging, man, do I need that. And man, did I need that. And man, doesn't everyone else need that. The one thing that everyone in the world absolutely is desiring, and they will do whatever it takes to get it. Do you know what it is? The big B word. Somewhere where they belong. Somewhere where belonging isn't subject to change. Somewhere where belonging is absolute. They need family belonging. We're going to jump from that verse over to 39, I believe. Yeah, there we go. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So immediately after that, so she goes out and the disciples and Jesus have this unique conversation. And Jesus is talking, they think he's talking about lunch. They're like, hey, he's got a Subway sandwich stuck like in his backpack somewhere. Like, did he have any food? He's going, my food's not this. My food is to do the will of the Father and look around and look at the harvest that is around you and they're completely lost. And I just love that because I attach to them most of the time. 
But it says that the Samaritan woman goes out and she engages her own people. The same people that she, I, I believe, was marginalized from before, coming out and getting water by herself. It says this. She goes and engages them, and here in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Testimony of the woman. She blasts through all cultural norms, all limitations, all barriers, and we get to see this woman in one conversation with Jesus go from prostitute to missionary. I think that's awesome. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them, she, she says this, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, didn't we already mention that Jews aren't allowed to stay in Samaria overnight? This is cool. I think it's amazing that Jesus just camps out and chills with them for two days. I mean, he's touching things, and he's sleeping. He's staying there in an area where any, any Jew would have been made unclean. They couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't be with God, but here God goes into Samaria. I guess he's not concerned about being unclean. Anyway, stay there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. A whole town comes to know Jesus. So I want to go back to that original question. What makes you any different? There's a lot of movements. There's a lot of religions. There's a lot of belief systems. There's a lot of folks out there. I mean, you beg the question, does Jesus come to start a religion? I would beg that he did not. I believe he came to start a legitimate relationship. But the question is still this. What makes you any different? What's the difference? So I want to give you a math equation, since we're in Redmond. And I, I'm just assuming you guys are better at math than I am. The difference is this. First of all, this first line, by the way, is how the world works. It's how the world works. First being this, behavior. The world looks first at behavior. And so when I, and by the way, if you're a note taker, this might be out of everything. This, you might want to jot this one down. Maybe, maybe not. Behavior. Behavior being first. We look at the external, don't we? And so I'm, I'm including into behavior like how you dress, how you smell, how you act, how you behave. And I believe the world looks at behavior first. And it's absolutely judging each other, judgmental, looking at behavior first. Next, behavior plus beliefs. So we will derive how you behave, what your core beliefs are. Now, if there's by chance that your behavior is pleasing to me and your beliefs, by my estimation, if your beliefs match mine, then guess what I will finally offer you because you've earned it? Belonging. This is how the world works. This is how religion works. This is how churches that aren't following Jesus work. Why don't you think about it for a minute? This is how, this is how gang mentality works. This is how your schools work, and whether you're going to be popular at school, this is how your work works. If you can pr produce here, if you can behave like we ask you to, if you can hold the position in the job that we declare that you should have, and if you can show that you're, by doing those behaviors, that you're upholding the beliefs of our company, well then, man, you've made tenure, or man, you, hey, we've got a retirement plan for you, or hey, we will extend to you belonging, we'll give you the company cup or t-shirt. I remember as a kid looking for popularity at school. Man, if I could, man, I watched. And I was one of those kids. Like, I, I, I went after popularity more than I went after anything else. And if I could find out what those kids wanted me to do 
for a laugh or, or what would make me cool or whether, whether I did athletics or not, like whatever it was, I would find out what it is that they wanted from me behaviorally and I would start performing it out. And if I could start performing it out, then they'd go, man, this is part of who he really is, which is part of his beliefs. And man, if my beliefs and my behavior matched yours, well, then I could become part of the crowd, right? I could become popular. I could belong. I don't know if gang mentality makes sense here in Redmond, Washington, but it's very similar to that. If you will wear the right colors, if you will deal the right drugs, if you will talk the right talk, if you will make the right signs, then, you will, then you, th- that's first step. Your behavior's first. And then if you can show that you're willing to die for this thing as we are, if you're willing to believe what we believe, then, then you're, a part of the, you're a part of the group. Can we kind of look at that and kind of agree that's the world we live in? If not, I welcome you afterwards to challenge it and talk to me about it because I don't want hands shooting up. But come and talk to me about it. I, loved, I would love to hear you th- it, how, how you think the world might work differently than that. But I really believe that's the world we live in. Behavior plus beliefs equal belonging. Jesus comes along, and I want to think about this. You can think about almost any story, even Jesus engaging in li- Peter's life or Paul, Saul who became Paul's life as we're reading through Acts, right? Almost anyone that Jesus engages with, it's not that he comes and goes, well, how's their behavior doing? I mean, look at this lady. Her behavior is she's sleeping around to stay at a place. She's had five husbands. We don't know why. She's a broken Samaritan living in drunkard. She's probably a drunkard in, drunk, in the town called Drunken, right? Has she done, done anything to earn his, has she done anything to earn belonging with him? No. On her own merit, like what she deserves. So he comes in and he enters in, so he operates the opposite. So belonging is first. This is the totally opposite of the rest of the world. That belonging is first. And I, I look at this story and I go, well, how do you see belonging first? Well, the fact that he goes, he had to. Divine calling goes right into the middle of the town, goes right to this particular well, and she's hanging out there and shows up and he speaks to her first. She didn't have the guts. She wasn't pursuing him, right? Speaks to her first and says, give me a drink. And do you know, sharing that cup, like we've already said, ceremonially unclean, unclean now, Right? He's blasting through everything to say, you belong. Belonging's first. And later, by the way, he will live a sinless life, as he already has up to this point, but he will continue to live a sinless life. He will continue to heal people, raise people from the dead, and he he will go all the way to Gethsemane. He will go all the way to laying in the dirt and being nailed to a cross and being put to death so that she can belong permanently. But it doesn't stop there, right? Belonging does turn into this transformation of beliefs and behavior. We'll just go ahead and throw it all up there. It does go, because we've got to get out of here. And hey, I started late because we started late, right? So I'm not completely guilty. Okay. <laughs> belonging equals beliefs and behavior. So beliefs are important. We should explore. And you notice in this conversation with Jesus, it starts out, can I sit with you and can I have a drink? And then he starts shaping her theology, doesn't he? He starts shaping her beliefs and she's asking questions and he's giving responses and he's going, guess what? And then eventually he reveals to her, I who speak to you am he. Of all the people, this prostitute, if you'll let me call her that, I who speak to you am he. And then what happens? Her behavior changes. At least we know it in this story. She goes from this marginalized woman collecting water to being a missionary. So I want to look at that and go, man, the first, by the way, the first time I saw this was at a conference, and I think this is a type of tool that's been used in other places, but man, this, this little simple equation has rocked my world. 
I've taught on it multiple times since then, and I, I still need to be taught it over and over again because I will start slipping into that first option all the time. Driving by a place, first impression of a person, whatever it is, first impression of a church, I'll start going, well, how are they behaving? Wonder if we believe the same thing. I guess I can give belonging. And Jesus goes, no, that's not how it worked for you. Aren't you glad it didn't work that way for you? Think of your condition prior Jesus. Did you earn him? No. Were you like seeking him out? He's the one that gave you the brain to seek anything in the first place. The answer is no. He pursues you. And he says, here, I've paved the way and we're gonna take belonging together later. I paved the way to pursue you and your heart. He offers belonging. And then he starts going, think about Peter, right? This rough, callous-handed fisherman comes to him and says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, just come with me, just walk with me, camp with me for three and a half years. I will walk intimately. Here's what belonging offers. Belonging offers familial connection with a commitment to walk through life together to both become like Jesus. It's like a familial connection that is a commitment that I will walk with you in the mud. I will walk with you to the point where we become more like Jesus. So here's some barriers. Just want to go through these real quick. Barrier number one. Barriers to why it's hard to offer belonging. Okay? Yourself which we kind of covered a little bit. Yourself, I think, is the first barrier. Your perception to how you were when Jesus came after you. If you could remember the gift that God has given you in belonging, then you would naturally, a byproduct of that would naturally be to share it with others. But when you and I start diminishing the gift that God actually says we belong, then we're not as quick to offer belonging to others. Another way of saying that is like, when you realize how much you've been forgiven, you're quicker to forgive, right? Right? When you realize how much grace you've been shown, you're quicker to show grace towards others, right? Sometimes we forget the gift that God says we belong. You and I belong to him. That's crazy. I think that's one major barrier. Another one besides the self is kind of connected to this is selfish. How would offering belonging to this person affect my life? How would offering belonging to this broken person affect my time and energy? How would offering belonging to this broken person affect my finances? Right? Don't we start asking those things first? And suddenly we're stepping back. Every one of those questions, we're stepping further away. Who's the person in your sphere of influence right now? I bet you could think of someone. Or if you start praying for one, I bet God will give you one. A person who desperately needs belonging that would be very hard to extend it to. But those barriers, don't they, right? Me, my family, my time and energy. Here's one, and it might be a legitimate one, maybe. What about my family's safety? If I extend belonging to this person, how will it impact my family's safety? But here's the deal. In our context, it's rarely that our actual family safety is on the line. Usually it's our family's comfort is on the line. Isn't it? Potentially. I also wonder, though, because Jesus' safety is on the line as he goes into Samaria, and he had to, divine calling, to go into Samaria to talk to this woman who everyone else. I mean, what about this question? Oh, big barrier. You ready? How will the church that I'm a part of view me for reaching out to this person? 
Jesus could have said, man, I can't go into the temple. I won't be ceremonially unclean. I mean, hey, I've got people watching me, and if I reach out to this Samaritan woman, what about your reputation? (gasps) But Jesus marches right through and delivers the gospel to the most unlikely woman. You follow that? What barriers are keeping you personally from, from offering belonging to anyone that God might call you to? There's some cultural barriers, racial, socioeconomic barriers, education and language barriers. Aren't we quick to go, well, they might speak a different language, or hey, they come from a different background, or hey, we're maybe in a different class of, you know, hey, maybe our education's different. Hey, racial barriers, man. Don't we let those kind of get in between us? How about lifestyle barriers? You see this person and they're covered in tattoos and you're not covered in tattoos and should I give belonging to this person and covered in tattoos? Because what's the church, what are the church people gonna think? Ouch. Lifestyle, what about sexual orientation? Man, you guys live in the greater Seattle area. What if this is a lesbian couple that God is calling you to give belonging to so that they could have belonging that would shape eventually their beliefs and their behavior? But what if you're called to give belonging to this couple first before they'll ever set foot in a direction towards the gospel? That's a hard one, isn't it? Belonging. God didn't call you to go make sure. Here's another one. Measurement. Oftentimes, we will be driven by measurement results first. Well, of course, if I knew they would come to Jesus, and I knew that it would be successful in the end, if I knew that by my definition, victory was to be had, then I would go and give belonging to that person, of course. But you don't get that. God's sovereign, not you. That's a Matthew 25 issue. If you read Matthew 25, Jesus separates sheep and goats, and, and he goes, hey, you gave to the least of these right? And the sheep go, when did we do that? And he said, well, as you gave to the least of these, you gave it to me. And they go, yay. And we didn't even know it. I guess we just loved you and loved, you know, that's cool. But the goats, they all said, well, if we knew, if we knew it was you, we would have given because we could have earned our salvation. Stop thinking like a goat. I guess it's kind of what I'm saying. Offer belonging regardless of whether you think it's going to be a victory in the end. I find it curious that Jesus let Judas walk with him as long as he did. Last one, church. How about as a church? Uh, What rituals might you have as a church? I've been talking to individuals for the most part, but as a church, what what rituals might you have? What schedules might you have? Here's here's a way of putting it. As a church, I would want to challenge Union Hill because I love you. And hey, you've given us belonging, and we're a mess, so you're doing pretty good, really. But I just put this out here. As Union Hill, what rituals might you have? What language, what kind of things might you have that are barriers to offering belonging to just absolutely anyone? You have to budget belonging into who you are. Time and energy and money needs to go all around making belonging possible for the marginalized. And that is a very tough thing to do for a church. Because, let's be real, churches get in the mode of, hey, this is how we do worship, this is how we do this, this is the language we use. And not all, I'm not saying all those things are bad, I'm not. But it takes some courage to go, how could we give offering to people that are outside of the family more and more and more? And be innovative in that, and be pushing into that, and be obedient into that. Go, Jesus, how could we as a church offer belonging to absolutely anyone? So the living room is the church that we're planting down in southern Oregon. 
And yeah, it's a weird name, like, right, living room. It's not living room church, it's just called the living room. That was pretty intentional. We want it to feel comfortable to people who are far from God. We want to learn what it would look like to be a church for people who don't like church. And it's not for the sake of being innovative or just getting people through the door. It's not just so that we go, oh, we're one of those trendy new church plants. It really is, it really is. We want to offer belonging to people who have not found it elsewhere. And it's difficult to continue. I mean, we've already found ourselves into some Sunday rhythms that I, I don't think is offering belonging to everyone as well as we could. We're praying through that and we're trying to figure that out. And so the living room is in some flux right now on how we can offer belonging better. We're learning as we go. And that's all of us, whether you're a brand new church plant or you're an established church that's been doing it for like 50 years. We should constantly, 85 years? Man, that's even better. 85 years. We should constantly be going, okay, how do we offer belonging to people who are far from God? And you know, like it's not to say that like that practices are bad at all. It's just to say, what practices could we focus on better that would offer belonging to more people? So our vision statement as the living room is we want to be a safe place for anyone, anyone. We usually highlight anyone. We want to be a safe place for anyone to engage in the life and mission of Jesus. And that is a very hard vision to go after because you know what? We get selfish, we get distracted, we get stuck in rituals, we get whatever. I just want to challenge you guys as a church. You could be praying for us as well as we look at it. Again, it's not for that sake of innovation. It's for the sake of people who are far from God. My prayer is that God would just pour on our hearts a deep desire and a, just a brokenness for people who are far from him. Just a deep desire. Do you know that there's lost people that still live out there? We walk by him in supermarkets and on the, on the way to the store, we're driving by him. I mean, like every day you're walking by someone who's far from God and his view of them, they're either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. I'm not, like, I didn't make that up. That's, that's his. And he, he looks at them and he knows whether they're spiritually alive, spiritually dead. What would it look like as a body if we could just have more of a longing to engage people who he would say are spiritually dead? Wouldn't it be worth it to push through those barriers to offer belonging just offering a safe place. Are you a safe place for people that are far from God? I'm talking not as a church, but as a person, back, back to just you as an individual. Are you a safe place for people who are far from God? It's a good question. Let's just pray over that. Jesus, thank you for being the safest place for people who are as broken as we are. Lord, thank you that you hold on to that equation of offering belonging first that would translate into our beliefs and our behavior change. Really, that's a, that's a simple way of just of viewing sanctification, that you're a God who transforms, but it comes from a place of belonging first. So Jesus, we are, I, I know that I am grateful. I'm so grateful when I look back at how and who I was before you entered into my life, broken beyond description dead, that outside of you we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that you literally entered into a world of death in order to bring life. That is belonging. Lord, would you transform this room, Lord? You know the hearts that are in this room. Perhaps there's some people who might identify right now that they are, they are outside of a relationship with you and they don't belong right now anywhere. And Lord, I pray that you would pull on those hearts and drive them into a relationship with you, that you would that the love of your belonging would drive hearts towards you. 
I pray that we could see people even here and now this morning uh, meet you and belong to you and enter into a relationship with you, maybe for the first time even. Pray that those people would hang out and, and stay around and celebrate with us as a family that they, that they did place their belonging in their lives in your hands, that they said, I do, in that sense, Lord. Perhaps, Lord, there's rooms or there's hearts in this room, Lord, that have been professing Christians for a very long time, but haven't been actual Jesus followers. They haven't been agents of belonging. They've been religious folk going to church. Lord, would you convict those hearts in this room? Man, how often mine has been one of those as well. Pray that you would trim out of it what you want so that we could be people who simply extend your grace and your love towards others, your belonging towards others. And Lord, over this church, Union Hill, what a beautiful family it is. What a beautiful family on mission that it truly is. Lord, I, I pray for the leadership. I pray over the elders. I pray for Pastor Ben. A lot of transition, a lot of different shaking and moving going on here, Lord. And I, I just sense your spirit. I, I pray for even more extra measure of your spirit and that you would take this body into offering such an element of belonging that they just can't keep up with the amount of sending that they're doing. We pray for women of the well to come here. We pray for men who would be like men of the well coming through here, putting a new faith in you, understanding a new life in you, and then being sent out having had been prostitutes or drug addicts or drug dealers or whatever they had been before, they get transformed here and sent out as missionaries just like you did with that woman, the most unlikely person of all. Thank you, Lord, that this building is full of some of the most unlikely people of all. We love you, Jesus.